my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we are joined by Sophie Lloyd, who's the nurse practitioner for cardiology at both the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital and also at Redcliffe Hospital. And she's going to talk to us about five things to do with heart function. Welcome, Sophie. Hello, good morning. Hey, Sophie. Uh, we'd love to get to know a little bit about you and your nursing journey to this point. Um, well, I actually did my training at the Royal Brisbane Hospital and finished in 92 and did some general ward work and uh, sort of fell in love with the cardiac side of things in 1994. So worked long term in coronary care and the cardiac cath lab and when the heart support service um, was born in 2006 here at the Royal, I transitioned into the area of heart failure. So I've been working in there team since that time and um, this year was lucky enough to get a job both working at the Redcliffe Hospital as a nurse practitioner and the Royal Brisbane as well. So, yeah. Okay, so let's just get straight into it. Um, your, our number one thing that we're going to first talk about is what is the structure and anatomy of the heart? Well, the heart's a pretty complicated organ really. It um, sits just to the left hand side of your sternum in your chest. It's uh, a muscle um, it has its own blood supply, which sits on the outside of the heart called the coronary arteries. So uh, a lot of people sort of consider the blood flow through the heart to be its blood supply, but it actually has its own supply. So the coronary arteries branch off uh, just above the aortic valve and they feed the heart muscle itself with, it, with its own blood. The actual um, heart structure, there's four main chambers. You've got um, two atrium or atria at the top, the right and left and then two ventricles at the bottom, the left and the right as well. So the right side of the heart's actually a bit smaller than the left. Um, its job is to pump blood to the lungs, so it's a smaller area to, to work against. Mm -hmm. And then the left side of the heart is actually thicker in structure because it's got to pump uh, blood out to the, the aorta, which is a main blood vessel feeding your blood supply to your body. Um, so... In between the top and bottom chambers, there's valves that stop the black flow of blood um, and they're called on the right side, the tricuspid valve and on the left side, the mitral valve. The valves that are stop the back flow um, from in, back into the ventricles, on the right side, you have the pulmonary valve and on the left side, you have the aortic valve. Um, so the blood comes into the right atrium from the inferior and superior vena cava. Um, to fill the right atrium, goes through the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle and out to the pulmonary um, artery to the lungs. On the left side, the blood comes in via the pulmonary veins, which is nice oxygenated blood, into the left atrium, through the mitral valve, into the left ventricle and out through the aortic valve to your aorta and that blood's distributed to your body. 
That is, I imagine that's incredibly hard to do without a graphic standing in front of you. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> I was like, what? I could see your brain working hard there. Do you normally, when you're describing that, I imagine you have a diagram right in front of you or a model of the heart? Yes, we do. We work with a model and there's actually really good graphics online nowadays, um, virtual heart and heart online. They've got lots of really good um, pictures and diagrams. So it can be quite complicated explaining to a patient which particular side of the heart's affected and and so forth. So we do we do go with pictures a lot. Yeah. So virtual heart and what was the other one? Um, heart Online is actually a go-to website for both patients and health professionals. It's a really useful resource. All right, we'll link that to the podcast. Yeah, Thank you. Definitely encourage people to branch out from the audio and into the visual yeah. on that one. I did forget to say Heart Foundation has amazing resources as well, but they're generally well known. So yep, yep. terrific. I guess our number two is what is the function of the heart and as a kind of layperson in health, you know, I worked in cardiology, people always referred to it as a pump. Mm-hmm. So what, what is the function and why a pump? Well, the heart's like, I guess, the tank house, you know, the, the pump for the body and its job is to deliver blood flow to both the, all the vital organs, um, your peripheries, uh, and then also um, get the blood back to the lungs to be oxygenated before it comes back into the heart to then be pumped to the body. So it's a cyclic sort of process really. With the anatomy of the heart, there's actually three layers. Um, You've got the endocardium, which is the inner layer, the myocardium, which is the muscular layer, and then the pericardium, which involves a pericardial sac around the heart, sort of I guess the protective layer of the heart. Um, And when it does pump, it has a unusual sort of ringing motion so that the blood is sort of squeezed out of the heart. Um, the other thing that's interesting to note is that the heart never is completely empty, otherwise it'd be like a deflated balloon. So it's got that um, residual volume that's left at the end of um, its ejection of blood to the body. Now, I thought, <laughs> I, I'm sure the listeners love my little theories, but I always thought the heart was literally when it was contracting, it's just pumping in and out like a squeeze. But that's not right, is it? It's a a ringing kind of top to bottom. Yeah, so it's sort of, it's a twisting motion. Um, and in doing that, with the actual initial ejection of blood, the right atrium has what we call an atrial kick, which actually contributes a gravity-fed flow of blood from the top chamber to the bottom chamber contributes to that overall ability to get the most volume out of the left ventricle when it does the bottom ringing motion. So it is quite like a squeeze or twisting squeeze, I guess. Yeah, it's to me, I never I never cease to be amazed, I guess, by the function of the heart. When you look at someone like Jesse, what are you, six four? Yep. Six foot four, that your heart can literally get blood all the way up to your brain, all the way down to, you know, I know there's some gravitational, you know, assistance with that, but it is a, it is a really hardworking organ, isn't it? Hmm. And it's the size of your fist, which is pretty incredible. So, yeah, in a normal heart, that is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've kind of understood now about the anatomy. We've talked a little bit about the function and it's being like a pump. So your number three is about cardiac output. So what is it and what are the effects of that? Sure. So once again, not a simple sort of thing to understand, but your cardiac output is actually the amount of blood pumped from your left ventricle out to your body every minute. In a normal person, that's usually around four to six litres. 
and your cardiac output, if you want an equation, and a lot of mass people like equations, equals your stroke volume times by your heart rate. So I guess everybody can appreciate what your heart rate is. It's the pulse that you measure in your wrist. It's the number of heartbeats per minute. So that's an easy one to work out. The stroke volume for a, a usual person is around 70 mils. So you times your 70 mils by your heart rate and you generally get around that four to six litres mm. per minute. Um, and the stroke volume is the amount of blood that's ejected from the left ventricle with each contraction. That's right, yep. Jesse. Yeah, yep. cool. Um, so the, the factors that affect that cardiac output include obviously your heart rate um, and then other terms known as your preload and afterload and also the contractility of the heart, so how well it's actually squeezing. Um, preload is uh, – actually there's two fellows that actually came up with a bit of an analogy for preload. It's about the stretch of the left ventricle and filling. Um, so Mr Frank and Mr Starling, it's called the Frank-Starling law, talk about the degree of stretch to which it can no longer stretch – and accommodate the blood in that ventricle. So um, they equate it to a, or I guess novice people equate it to a pair of underpants. So um, they have a certain amount of stretch and then actually can't stretch any further without with recoil. So that can impact on your cardiac output. So I guess when we think about that, so the heart is on average the size of your fist. So that's why when the heart is under pressure, we've we've put on a lot of weight or we're no longer of a fitness level. Uh, that puts enormous amount of pressure on the part on the heart, isn't it, to still keep doing the job effectively? Definitely. And um, in the older population, that um, ability to relax and fill often diminishes, and be- the heart becomes quite um, stiff and non sort of stretchy. So not able to do that, um, you know, accommodate the blood in that ventricle. Um, the other um, component is afterload and that's actually the pressure which your left ventricle has to pump against. So more related to your systemic vascular resistance and your blood pressure. So that measurement in the aorta, um, beyond the aortic valve. And so I suppose that's... the. A high afterload, so chronic hypertension, this is where we get into that picture of the left ventricles pumping out against something hard, which is making it fill and stretch to a point where it's becoming that baggy pair of undies. That's right. That's right. So hypertension is actually one of the main top three causes of heart failure. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jesse, can I ask you a question in putting your exercise science hat on? I do lots of exercise, but I don't like to sweat. (laughs) really morally opposed against it. It goes against my OCD. So when you're thinking about heart function, how important is it when you're exercising to actually get your cardiac, you know, rate up, your output up for your overall heart function? It it depends, I guess. It depends what you're looking for. So there's a difference between training for performance versus training for health. And I think those two get confused a lot. People might go in thinking they're training for health and then start training for performance and it bangs – your body becomes unhealthy because it's making extreme adaptations. Mm. So training for sports performance is very different. If you're training for that, then you're pushing an adaptation. Mm. And a good example of this is Olympic rowers. They've been measured to have um, cardiac output post-exertion. So while it's still right up there from they've just finished a rowing erg test uh, of 12 litres per minute. So huge outputs. They're, they're achieving that due to 
adaptation because they've actually not just adjusted their ability to raise their heart rate. If we tried to raise our heart rate to create that, mm. we're going to be have huge heart rates. But they've also, over time, caused left ventricular hypertrophy growing and thickening of that muscle wall so they get a bigger stroke volume mm. out of it. So that's one of those functions that pushes where you see really fit athletes, I should not use healthy, mm. really fit athletes that will have a lower heart rate. Mm. And that's usually um, due to left ventricular hypertrophy mm. because of training adaptation. That's a semi-healthy adaptation, but there is some risk. Like uh, These extremely trained athletes mm. can uh, do actually have slightly higher rates of heart failure in older age as well because that that muscle has been grown to a point and then it and it's not like your skeletal muscles where yeah. when that shrinks back everything's good you've yeah. stretched and grown and thickened the wall of that mm. which can cause issues later in life so i guess in the, the answer is if you're training for health weight loss just mm. reg, regular being being fit and healthy and cardiovascular health the indications are at least three times a week 30 minutes to a point where you're getting a bit hard to talk because you're breathless enough for that. Mm. That generally, for most people, will cor- correlate to around 60 to 70% of their age-predicted heart rate maximum, mm. which is 220 beats minus your age. Mm. Imperfect, but that's there's there's training for health versus training for performance. Okay, yeah. all right. Then I'm, I'm doing the right thing for my heart then. Uh, I was just going to say, Jesse, I think in the cardiology world, they refer to um, athlete's heart, which they do detect on their echocardiograms looking at the wall thickness and the ECGs do appear abnormal even though they're in healthy individuals but that overtraining, yeah. Mm. And look, the reason that I'm asking that is really like your heart is so important, pivotal to your overall health, isn't it, to looking after all your organs, your peripheries as well as obviously your brain, your oxygenation and that things like weight, chronic disease, age – all really impacted. So we want to be looking after our hearts right throughout our lives, not just as we get older. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, so your number four is really, I'm a bedside nurse, how do I assess cardiac function? Like I know I've got a pump, there's four chambers, you've used lots of big words. How do I actually work this out and how do I detect it in my patient? Yep, so I guess from a medical diagnostic point of view, an echocardiogram is the gold standard to look at what's happening with somebody's heart function, the anatomy, the, the size, the valves and the workings of the heart. Um, looking at somebody at the bedside, um, if you're in an intensive care situation, you'd have um, more invasive monitoring on the general wards. I guess the real key things are um, looking at your patient. So a patient who's well perfused, is pink and warm peripherally, um, their pulses are strong, their blood pressure's stable, um, their breathing's comfortable, um, they don't have any evidence of fluid in their feet or swollen belly. Um, if you're listening to their chest, their lungs would be clear. That's all very normal. I guess things we know um, in terms of if somebody's developing symptoms of heart failure, they would be describing they're getting more breathless, um, Rest, uh, shortness of breath at rest is actually, you know, a worry. Um, if they're waking at night short of breath, if they're needing to sit more propped up in bed, so on more pillows at night or the angle of the bed's inclined, if any, they've got a cough that's new, that can be a symptom of um, heart failure to be um, aware of. Uh, looking at them, you can notice if your fingers are leaving an indent in their feet or ankles, um, so they're getting some peripheral swelling. 
them describing that their belly's feeling full and uncomfortable or their appetite's gone down, uh, sort of all signs of increasing fluid symptoms. Weighing your patient in the mornings is really helpful to um, discern whether they're retaining fluid as well because a rapid change in weight will give you an indication. Can I ask a, a dumb question? That's kind of my job here. So I get why you're breath- breathless, why you might not have a good colour. I understand, you know, that all makes sense. Yep. Why the fluid retention? So your body responds very quickly to changes in equilibrium and tries to fix itself. And I guess the way your body works is that when your heart isn't able to pump the blood forward to meet the body's needs, it receives that as a um, loss of blood. So like a hemorrhage, I guess, and causes everything to shut down, all the peripheries to shut down. It causes your kidneys to hang on to fluid and salt. So that in turn then increases those uh, fluid signs and symptoms, so the swelling, because your body's actually hanging on to fluid because it thinks it's not getting enough blood out to the body. Ah, Your body's going, I'm hypovolemic. I've got plenty in the pipes and it's just the pump that's not working. Similar to like a shark has bitten me. It's, It's doing what it would do then. Yeah. Okay. How interesting. When in kids, obviously, like you would often, you know, first time someone gets detected is, you know, during a breastfeed or a bottle feed, they're very sweaty. Mm. Uh, they're very blue. You can notice that very quickly. Is sweatiness part of it in adults as well? Or no, that's more pediatric. Um, I guess there's sort of four descriptions in terms of how well perfused somebody is or, you know, deteriorating into like a shock syndrome. Um, so I guess warm warm and pink is good. Uh, cool and pink, not too bad. Cool and dry. And then we've got wet and cool. So I guess that's sort of a qu- across a uh, spectrum. Spectrum, sort of yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. The sweating is like is from a catecholamine surge as well. So your adrenaline is trying to – at that stage you're in shock. You're actually having um, an adrenaline surge to try and – preserve some heart function and kick it into gear so that's what that diaphoresis is is like if you get a scare and you sweat yeah or if you think about exercising and you sweat it's that i don't sweat even when i'm scared is that is that why i'm sweating right now (laughs) liz Liz is like jean claude van damme that reference isn't gonna land on most of our listeners (laughs) we're too old exactly all right so that okay that all makes perfect sense so that's we've been talking about a healthy functioning heart. Mm-hmm. So what is heart failure? Because I guess lots of people think heart failure is your heart stopping, but it, it's not, is it? That's quite right. A lot of our patients often um, yeah, do believe that heart failure is the heart stopping. Um, if that was the case, we wouldn't be talking to our patients. But no, heart failure is basically a clinical syndrome which is quite complex it can be with or without signs and symptoms whereby the heart isn't able to pump enough blood to meet the body's needs so i guess that's sort of overarching um and it's a internationally recognized term across all countries so it does sound like a negative term and we try and explain it in a more there's a problem with the heart pump it's not pumping normally mm. is how we sort of phrase it rather than you've got heart failure. So um, it seems to be better received that way. There's yep. room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So it can involve just the left side of the heart with the 
left ventricle um, being impaired or it can involve the right side of the heart, so um, particular lung conditions. Uh, it can involve both sides and um, we call that biventricular failure. It can be a systolic left ventricular heart failure whereby the left ventricle pump function is impaired or it can be a diastolic problem where the filling, those filling pressures that we spoke about earlier um, are elevated and the hearts become stiff. So uh, the echocardiogram is the gold standard um, assessment tool that doctors or investigation that doctors use um, to assess heart function and um, that looks at the size of the heart, the thickness, the valves um, and the pumping ability. So is it fair to say that heart failure is really a heart function pumping problem, which is quite different than if people have an arrhythmia or something like that. That's more about the beating mechanism. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, an arrhythmia can definitely cause heart failure, as can a heart attack or coronary artery disease. So the, the top three main causes for heart failure are coronary artery disease, so somebody having a heart attack or disease in their coronary arteries, which, which is that blood supply system that sits on the outside of the heart. Um, problems with long-standing hypertension, like Jesse spoke about earlier, uh, chronic hypertension, because that prolonged strain on the heart where that left ventricle's got to pump against that really high pressure for that length of time um, eventually results in heart failure. Um, and also valve problems where the valves become either stiff and don't seal properly or they're um, not close, allowing regurgitation of blood back as well. So um, they're the top three. There's lots of other causes. Mm -hmm. um, there can be responses to drug therapies. There can be arrhythmias, um, thyroid problems, anemia, um, diabetes. Um, viral we've seen yes, yeah, bit viral. over the last yep. few years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and substance abuse, of course, as well. So, yeah. yep. so not everybody who has a heart attack... Uh, has been in heart failure prior to? No, no. And not everybody that has a heart attack will go on to develop heart failure. Um, that's why they're big on uh, people alerting the ambulance as soon as they develop symptoms so that there's no delay in time and that heart muscle is actually restored. Yeah. So for those of you who listen regularly, around about now, Sophie, I do a kind of summary of what we've talked about I am too scared to do that when it comes to the heart, so I'm going to pass it off to my lovely colleague to the right of me, Jessie Spur. We found one, Liz's one weakness. <laughs> I also can't The heart sew. of the problem. <laughs> I really can't say that. Nice, nice pun. <laughs> All right, so number one was the structure and anatomy of the heart, and we talked about um, the four chambers, and I guess the best way to do this without visual aids is kind of thinking of ourselves as like, I love that, like the little miniature school bus that's been shrunken through, and we're trying, we're we're following that journey. So we're we're blood returning from the systemic circulation via the venous circulation. We come in through the vena cava into the right atrium. We go through the into the right ventricle. We go through the pulmonary uh, artery into the um, pulmonary circulation. We get reoxygenated. Uh, we pick up a bit of oxygen on the bus. We come back through into uh, through the pulmonary vein into the left atrium we go through the valve into the left ventricle and then we are ejected out through the aorta back into circulation and that process is all um, happening via uh, with the pump with the 
heart pumping, which takes us into number two, which is what is the function of the heart pump? I was going to say that, by the way. That's how I was going to summarise it. Excellent. So (laughs) what is the function of the heart pump? Well, it is to circulate blood to itself through the lungs to oxygenate and um, get rid of carbon dioxide from metabolic processes and to circulate that oxygenated uh, nutrient-rich blood to the brain and all the other vital organs and muscles and peripheries of the body. The heart pump, I guess, is the function is cardiac output, which is our point number three. And cardiac output, very nicely described. Cardiac output is in litres per minute, so it's got a volume component and a time component. So our time component component is heart rate, so which is beats per minute and our volume component is stroke volume is around about 70 mils um, at rest for uh, a normal adult heart and that's the amount ejected from the left ventricle into systemic circulation with every beat so our heart our cardiac output becomes a result of that volume times rate that's affected by preload so the amount of blood that is in the heart at stretch point and that's um that's dependent on a number of factors but so for you ha- highlighted the frank and starling or i think a lot of people think it's frank starling so yeah. i like the point yeah. that you made of the two um frank starling curve which there's an optimal amount of stretch where you get the maximum recoil and and output from from that function so we and then the other factor that it, that impacts that is the afterload, which is the um, the resistance from systemic um, vascular resistance from tight valves from other factors in there that can cause a excessive or in the case of where we've got say septic shock vasodilation, there's not enough afterload, so that impairs the filling, which then has a knock-on effect, and you go into that cycle of poor preload, poor afterload. So mm-hmm. that fed nicely into point number four, which is how at the bedside nurses we can assess um, cardiac function or signs of failure because we're looking for pathology often. So a lot of that we're doing when we do our vital signs. So we're checking heart rate, we're checking blood pressure and blood pressure is combined of cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. So we're actually kind of measuring those factors of cardiac output in that. And then the subjective stuff that we're looking at is for signs of uh, fluid retention edema and you highlighted um, the peripheral edema that we often uh, we, we get we think of, that pitting sort of um, edema. And I think probably the good reminder as well is looking at central because we're looking at gravity dependence. A lot of our patients will have their limbs elevated, yeah. so we might miss that. So sacral, um, checking the sacrum and feeling if that's boggy. Um, and we're looking at kind of those warmth, skin turga, all of those, and, and colour. Then that that sort of goes through our understanding of the normal heart and the way we assess that, and we got a great introduction into heart failure and thinking about that as heart insufficiency to supply of the pump to supply blood to where it needs to go, and the signs that we see with that starting to be um, evidence of the heart trying to or the body trying to adapt to the, all of the messaging that it's getting from receptors in the kidneys receptors in the brain receptors in the heart muscle itself that we haven't got enough fluid on board so it tries to retain fluid so that's a really common symptom that we see and how that manifests was things like a cough we're seeing accumulation of fluid in the lungs or in the peripheries and that will give us a lot of a sign of what's going on there that sort of lays the beautiful platform for our episode 
that's coming after this, which is um, one in a series that we're going to go deeper and deeper into um, heart function and heart failure. So we've got another one coming up um, from a colleague of yours, Janine Johnson, who does a great job of diving into heart failure and the treatments. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us today on Five Things. I'm sure everyone's going to be much wiser about the heart. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things. 